It's Thursday, March 15, 2018 in Miami, Florida. It's 1.46 p.m. The sun is shining and there's not a cloud in the sky. Cars are driving along Southwest 8th Street. Ahead of them, further down the highway, is the main span of the soon-to-be-completed Florida International University Pedestrian Bridge. Once complete, it'll connect the main campus of the university to student housing in the suburb of Sweetwater. Cars are banked up at a red light, with some of them stopped directly below the bridge. Suddenly a loud cracking sound rends the air, and the bridge collapses. The span falls 5.6 metres onto the eight-lane highway below and eight cars are crushed. One worker on the bridge is killed, along with five occupants in the crushed vehicles. The entire failure has taken less than half a second to occur. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Today's episode is the first of a three-part series about the collapse of the Florida International University Pedestrian Bridge in Miami, Florida in 2018. In this part, you'll hear about how the warning signs were ignored, which could have prevented the collapse of the bridge, which led to the deaths of six people. In part two, we look at the errors made in the design of the bridge. And finally, in part three, you'll hear about how these errors went unidentified, despite detailed checking requirements being in place. There's a quote by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche where he talks about how we cope when something's unfamiliar to us. And I think it's particularly relevant in today's story. Nietzsche says, To trace something unfamiliar back to something familiar is at once a relief, a comfort, and a satisfaction, while it also produces a feeling of power. Conversely, he says, The unfamiliar involves danger, anxiety, and care. The fundamental instinct is to get rid of these painful circumstances. And as you listen to the story of the collapse of the Florida International University Pedestrian Bridge, you'll enter the world of the unfamiliar, and you'll find it difficult to trace what caused this tragedy back to something familiar. For example, you'll hear about how bad design decisions were made, and you'll hear about how the checks and balances put in place to identify these bad decisions failed. You'll also hear about how this bridge gave warning sign after warning sign that something was wrong, but the parties involved did little to act. Much of what you'll hear you'll find hard to rationalise. You'll continually ask yourself, why would engineers make decisions like this? And the more you learn about what happened, the harder you'll find it to understand why it happened. So to start, let's have a chat about the bridge and those that were involved in building it. So this bridge was never completed, but if it had been, it was meant to look like a cable-stayed bridge. A bridge supported by straight cables, like Anzac Bridge in Sydney or the Pont de Normandie in France. 
But in reality, this wasn't a true cable-stayed bridge. It was only designed to look like one. The cables weren't actually holding up the structure like they would in a true cable-stayed bridge. They were largely there for architectural purposes, basically to make the bridge look more impressive. So the main span of the bridge, which is the section that ultimately collapsed, was constructed from reinforced concrete in a yard near the construction site in February 2018. This main span was a truss span. There was a horizontal top cord and bottom cord, and then some diagonal and vertical members in between connecting them. The horizontal bottom cord was the deck, the horizontal top cord was called the canopy, and then connecting the deck and the canopy together were 12 vertical or diagonal members, numbered 1 to 12. So in simple terms, if you were to look at the side of this bridge, it would look like a rectangle. The bottom of the rectangle is the deck, the top is the canopy, and the vertical sides are members 1 and 12. Then imagine 10 diagonal lines inside the rectangle connecting the top and bottom. These are members 2 to 11. The rectangle is then supported at each end at the deck level. So this truss span is made out of concrete, but you don't tend to build truss bridges out of concrete. And the reason you don't is important, and it's worth going through a little structural engineering 101 here because it's important for the story. And apologies to any structural engineers listening as we step through some basics. So the main reason you don't build truss bridges out of concrete is because concrete is very bad at dealing with tension or tensile loads. But concrete is really great in compression. And what I mean by that is that when you try and squeeze concrete, it's very, very strong. It's hard to break. But when you try and stretch concrete with a tension force, it's incredibly easy to crack and break. And as engineers, what we actually do to cope with this weakness in concrete is we come along and we put reinforcing steel in the concrete where we expect the concrete to experience tension forces. Then, once these tension forces get applied, the steel actually does the hard work of carrying this tension or tensile force and the concrete doesn't crack too much. But even though we do this, as engineers we don't like to build bridges from concrete where there's a lot of tensile forces. And in a truss bridge, some of the members will be in compression, which is good, but some of them will also be in tension. And this is awkward to manage, so we typically build these types of bridges from steel. So with that in mind, this bridge was cast in a yard near the site. Then on the night of March 10, it was transported from the yard to its position over the highway. To do this, the main span of the bridge was lifted by two transporters, and with the highway close to traffic, it was moved to its final position where it spanned across the eight-lane highway. At this point, it was supported at each end. And in engineering terms, a bridge that spans from end to end is called a simply supported structure. But the challenge the design engineers had to cope with during the move was that while the span was being transported, it wasn't actually spanning end to end. And this was because the transporters were located some distance in from each end. So during the move, you now have the two ends of the span hanging out, unsupported, in midair. In engineering terms, we'd say these ends were cantilevered. This means that they want to droop downwards. Now, preventing them drooping downwards are two of the diagonal members, members 2 and 11. And these are the two diagonal members on each end of the span. Now, let's ignore member 2 for the rest of this discussion and let's focus on member number 11, which is subject to tensile loading as it tries to stop the end of the span from drooping. 
Now, as you heard, concrete does not like tensile loading. When you try and stretch it, it can crack. So to deal with this tensile load in member 11 that happens during the move, member 11 was post-tensioned. So what does that mean? Well, here's some more engineering. What it means is that when the concrete is being poured into position, they install some ducts, some pipes essentially, that run along inside the member. Steel rods are then installed in the ducts. Then, prior to the move, a jack is attached to the end of the rod at the top of member 11, and a tension is applied to the rod. Now, the other end of this rod is embedded in the concrete where member 11 joins member 12 and the deck. Now, the application of tensile load to the rod has the effect of squeezing the concrete and member 11 together in compression. This actually prevents the member going into tension during the move, so it stops it cracking. Think of it like this. Member 11 wants to go into tension, but if you let that happen, it could crack. So the post-tensioning is actually pre-squeezing the member into so much compression that when a tensile load is applied during the move, the member, in very simplistic terms, has so much compressive loading in it that it never actually goes into tension and cracks. Then, once the bridge is in position over the highway, the transporters are removed and the post-tensioning in member 11 is also released. It's not needed anymore. Now, at this point, the main span is supporting its own weight. And from this point forward, the plan was that the contractor would install another shorter span, a pylon to hold long pipes, and these pipes were meant to mimic the cables. And once this was complete, it would look like a cable-stayed bridge. But all of this never happened because this main span is the part of the bridge that collapsed. So before we talk about how the bridge failed, let's talk about the parties that were involved in this project. The bridge was being built for the Florida International University. Funding was provided through the Florida Department of Transport and they also had a responsibility to make sure the bridge was designed and constructed properly. Florida International University then entered into a design and construct contract with MCM contractors. And MCM then subcontracted the design of the bridge to a company called FIG. Running parallel to this, Florida International University also engaged a group called Bolton Perez and Associates to be the construction, engineering and inspection consultants. Their job is to keep an eye on the MCM work in terms of progress and quality and to identify and direct the MCM to fix any discrepancies. So they were essentially checking that things were being done right for Florida International University. So that's it. You have Florida International University who are getting the bridge built, being watched over by Florida Department of Transport. Florida International University hire MCM to design and build a bridge and MCM in turn hire FIG to do the design. And running parallel to all this, you have Bolton Perez and Associates doing the inspection on behalf of Florida International University. So you heard earlier how in this failure, it's really hard to understand why this collapse occurred, why the parties involved made the decisions they made. And we see this in the investigation report that was prepared by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB. I've read a lot of NTSB reports over the years, but I've never read one that contains the sort of language you see in this one. This was a bridge that had serious errors in its design. 
Now, we'll talk about that in the next episode, but in addition to these errors, the NTSB report also talks about, and I quote, a complete lack of oversight by every single party that had responsibility to either identify the design errors or stop work and call for a safety stand-down once it was clear there was a massive internal failure. This report goes on to say, and again I quote, when the inevitable began to happen, a creeping, catastrophic material failure, nobody did anything. They also say that this was a bridge screaming at everyone that it was failing. So let's spend the rest of this episode talking about why, when this creeping, catastrophic material failure began to happen, nobody did anything about it. And unfortunately, you'll find no easy answers. So this failure didn't suddenly present itself on the day the bridge collapsed. It first presented itself about three weeks earlier, when there was plenty of time available for the parties to deal with it. This part of the story starts on February 24. The main span of the bridge is in the casting yard, and up until this point, it's been supported along its length by temporary falls work. This is there to support the bridge until the concrete cures and develops enough strength to support itself without cracking. And on February 24, as they're removing the false work, they hear a loud cracking sound. So this means that the very first time the main span is required to carry its own weight, it can't and it cracks. Now where are these cracks? Well, as you heard earlier, this main span is a truss configuration. The horizontal bottom cord is the deck, the horizontal top cord is the canopy, and connecting the deck and the canopy together are 12 vertical or diagonal members. The cracks that we're interested in have formed towards one end of the span, where vertical member 12, the end member, and diagonal member 11 are connected to the deck of the bridge. So you have cracks at the end of the span where the diagonal and vertical members join the bottom cord of the bridge. Think of this as the bottom corner joint in one end of the span. And this is the very connection that will fail three weeks later and initiate the collapse of the bridge. So the joint that failed actually began failing before the span even left the casting yard and was placed in position over the highway. How bad are these cracks? Well, cracks in reinforced concrete are a normal thing, and the way you deal with them is to make sure they're not too wide. And for this particular bridge, cracks that are smaller in width than 0.4 of a millimetre were deemed acceptable. Now, to get a feel for how small 0.4 of a millimetre is, it's about the same thickness as the nail on your little finger. So if a crack is wider than the thickness of the nail on your little finger, it means there's potentially an issue. And these cracks were bigger than that. And they're about to get worse. Bolton Perez and Associates, who are engaged to undertake the inspections of the structure, take photographs of the cracks and send them to MCM, the contractor. MCM in turn sends them to FIG, the designers, and they ask FIG what do they think of them. And despite the size of the cracks, FIG are unconcerned. Now, the NTSB investigation into the collapse seems to shed no light on why FIG were so unconcerned about these cracks, but they were certainly bigger than the 0.4mm limit. So 
So next up is to move the bridge into position over the highway, and this takes place on March 10. This goes well, and once in place, they begin to release the post-tensioning stresses from members 2 and 11, as you heard earlier. And it's here where things really go wrong. As they release the post-tension, all hell literally breaks loose. The bridge starts to crack up around the member 11, member 12 joint area. These cracks are now bigger than the thickness of your fingernail, and they should have been very concerning. MCM, the contractor, sends an email with photos to Fig and says that it's their opinion that these cracks are large and they're concerning and they'd like some comment from Fig as quickly as possible to see what they're going to do with them. Fig get back to them the following day and say, among other things, we do not see this as a safety issue. And the NTSB again provide little information on why Fig were unconcerned. The same day, Bolton Prez, who are doing the inspections, are still on site and they're examining the cracks. They are wide and they are extensive and they are very concerning. They talk to MCM, the contractor again, and say they need to actually keep inspecting these to make sure they understand what's actually going wrong here. Nothing more is done except to keep inspecting. No meaningful investigation into what is causing them takes place. No road closures take place. This goes on into the next day, March 14. We're now a day before the failure, and inspections on the bridge continue. Some of the cracks look pretty horrific at this point. The NTSB estimate that the cracks were 40 times bigger than what were acceptable. And they said afterwards, quote, The extensive large and wide cracks observed in the member 11 and 12 nodal region should have been recognised as being abnormal for a reinforced concrete structure. The NTSB would say that FIG displayed poor engineering judgment in failing to recognise that these cracks were a clear indication of a failure of the bridge's load-resisting mechanisms. In other words, they were an indication that the bridge was failing. We then arrive at the following morning, the morning of the failure, March 15. It's 8am and FIG engineers go to site to look at the bridge. They take photographs of the cracks and then they go to a meeting with the other parties at 9am. Everyone that's important on this project is at this meeting. FIG, Florida Department of Transport, Florida International University, MCM and Bolton Perez and Associates. They're all there. Just before the meeting starts, MCM, who'd also been on site that day, approached FIG. They show FIG some photographs and say that these cracks look much more significant in person than they do in the photos. Despite this, Fig go on to deliver a presentation to everyone at the meeting and they say that they have no safety concerns relative to the observed cracks. In Bolton Perez's minutes from the meeting, they write, Fig assured that there was no concern with safety of the span suspended over the road. Fig's minutes, they note, Based on the discussions at the meeting, no one expressed concern with safety of the span suspended over the road. So here you have Bolton Press saying Fig assured everyone there was no concern, while Fig say that nobody expressed concern. And it's here that the NTSB became scathing. They say there was, quote, 
complete lack of oversight by every single party that had responsibility to either identify the design errors or stop work and call for a safety stand-down once it was clear there was a massive internal failure. So no one is willing to stop the job. And it's the next decision that brings all this to a head. FIG decide to restore the post-tension in Member 11. They believed that because releasing the post-tensioning earlier caused the cracks to get worse, restoring it will make things better. Restoring it will reapply a compressive load to the member 11, 12 and deck joint and this will close up all the large cracks. Now afterwards, the NTSB said this simply was not a solution. There was no way that such a badly cracked section of the bridge could be restored to behave like a solid block of concrete again just by compressing it back together. Instead, you actually ran the risk of making the joint explode because you're applying a massive force to what is an already badly damaged joint in the bridge. But this retentioning decision was taken. And what would turn this story into a disaster was deciding that the work would be undertaken without closing the road. As this large post-tensioning force was being applied to a badly cracked span, workers would be standing on top of the bridge and vehicles would be travelling on the highway below. It was this decision to reapply the post-tensioning that sealed the bridge's fate. So now, let's go back to the collapse. It's early afternoon on Thursday, March 15, 2018. The main span of the Florida International University Bridge is in place across the highway. Over the past three weeks, serious cracking has developed and grown around the Member 11, Member 12 and Deck Joint. This is a bridge progressing to failure. All it needs is something to push it over the edge. On top of the main span, workers are reapplying the post-tension to Member 11. Below them, cars are on the highway. The traffic lights are red and there's numerous cars stopped beneath the bridge. It's 1.46pm. The workers have just finished applying the post-tensioning to member 11. By now, this has resulted in massive stresses being applied to the member 11, member 12 deck joint. And now, it appears that the joint, in its badly cracked state, is simply not able to cope with the extra stress. Without warning, the joint fails and tears itself apart. This results in what looks like an explosion of concrete from the end of the bridge. Once this joint fails, the rest of the main span is no longer able to support itself. A key element of the structure has been lost. This results in the deck and canopy of the bridge fracturing, and once this occurs, the structure free falls 5.6 metres to the ground below. This collapse kills one of the workers who was applying the post-tensioning, and it crushes the vehicles beneath the bridge, killing five of the occupants. The entire failure has taken less than half a second to occur. In our next episode, we're going to look at the design errors that led to the bridge collapse, and we'll explore how these errors were missed, despite requirements being in place to catch them. 
But if you're hoping that by learning more, you'll better understand the deeper causes of this fear, then you'll find that there are no simple answers. While we can go some way to examine the technical causes of what happened, the systemic causes will prove elusive. In Nietzsche's words, you'll struggle to move from the unfamiliar to the familiar. But then, some stories just don't have neat endings. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.